0: I I chose on purpose to write the happiest book I could think of, to give the happiest ending to the most deserving people. And it was really, for me, First of all, mm-hmm. um, you know, we we lost two pets in one year and my grandmother. And so it was a rough year. And so it was just a choice. I am going to write something that makes me happy. <laughs> and hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully, if and when it gets published, it, w- it will give happiness and joy to other people uh, because it has been a hard few years. And we need it. We need we need a little you know, there's a reason Shirley Temple uh, peaked during the Great Depression. Why She was she was America's <laughs> sweetheart during the great depression we need we need a song and dance sometimes
1: Hey there, book gang. Let's escape real life with a magical island escape that any reader will love. Friends, I cannot wait for you to meet Meg Schaefer today as we discuss my favorite fantasy book of the year, The Wishing Game. In this Willy Wonka-style adventure, we follow the story of Lucy Hart, a 26-year-old teacher's aide who has always found solace in the pages of her beloved Clock Island series written by Jack Masterson. A public letter begins to go viral, sharing that a new book, A Wish for Clock Island, has been written and only one copy exists. Jack has plans to give it away to someone courageous, clever, and who knows how to make wishes. This invitation also says that you should check your mailbox if you know the answer to this riddle. Why is a raven like a writing desk? And Lucy just so happens to know the answer to this mysterious packages question, as do a few other longtime readers that have had beautiful interceptions throughout their lives with Jack's work. As you'll discover today, there is a lot of truth Behind this fictional plot, Meg was inspired by the true story of a boy who ran away and showed up on the doorstep of his favorite fantasy author. Today, we learn why Meg wanted to write this love letter to our childhood reading and what ripple effects she hopes it has on other readers. This isn't our only island escape, though. Each podcast episode in our summer series offers a bonus book list to expand your summer stack. And each of our authors have been assigned their show topic around elements of their own stories. This week's list is filled. With even more island settings to explore, that happen to be some of my favorite books, Meg's favorite books, and some wonderful suggestions for my fellow Mom Advice Book Club members. I know it is going to satisfy your cravings for wonderlust, whether you're looking for a fantasy adventure, romance, or even a thriller escape. If you're new here, welcome. I'm Amy Ellen Clark from MomAdvice.com, and I am the voice behind the Book Gang podcast. On this podcast, we celebrate under the read our books, backlist book selections, and debut novelists. I do wanna say a huge heartfelt thanks for your enthusiasm for this year's summer reading guide that launched last week. I can't thank you enough or just the new patrons that joined me, the encouragement from our current patrons, the tips, the kind words, the ways that you socially shared this. I do also wanna say a special thank you to Currently Reading podcasts. They shared this as a bookish moment of the week, which was thrilling. So thank you to them. And if you love this podcast, if you might miss it, if it was gone, I just wanna remind you that funding conversations like these is a wonderful way to pay it forward, to continue giving authors like Meg Shafer a space to share their stories. Patreon funds go into an account that help pay for our hosting platforms, sound equipment, and editing. It's a huge, huge help. I am so grateful. Joining our community is an affordable way to support the show and gain access to a wealth of resources, including bonus author interviews, music playlists, and our monthly fully book show where we review all of the latest releases and that is hosted with my well-read co-host Get Booked with Larry. If you can't commit to a month or a year though at an affordable rate of 5 bucks a month we do have a Buy Me a Coffee page for easy one-time donations too. You'll see both options for giving in our show notes today. And of course a wonderful free way to pay it forward as a fan is just share the episode with a friend, leave a like or leave a written review which is really really crucial for new shows like mine. Don't forget that tonight is our Mom Advice book club chat to discuss magic season with Wade Rouse, I am so excited to celebrate his beautiful father and son story and the magical ways that the two find connection through their love of baseball. Today we are joined by debut novelist Meg Schaefer, the author of The Wishing Game from Ballantine Books. Meg is a part-time creative writing instructor and a full-time MFA candidate in TV and screenwriting at Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. You can find Meg online or at home watching Hitchcock films and writing Star Trek fanfiction when she should be doing her homework. Intriguing bio, right? We need to unbox that. All right, now let's get chatting. I'm actually excited that I get to be the first one to interview you because I think sometimes I get in my own head when someone's on tour and then I hear them on two other shows and I realize I recorded and I didn't get to ask them certain things. But this time I get to be the first one. So I'm really excited about that. Meg, you are winning for best author bio today. I want to read this part (laughs) out loud. It says she lives in a state of uncertainty. Find her online or at home watching Hitchcock films and or writing Star Trek fan fiction when she should be doing her homework. Please tell me more. What is your favorite underrated Hitchcock film for our listeners?
0: Oh, wow. So I just got into Hitchcock in January. My husband and I did the thing that we're... Barnes & Noble at the end of the year does this big 50% off uh, book sale. So I I found a biography, of a, a new biography of Hitchcock, uh, 12 Ways of Looking at Hitchcock. And I, I don't think I'd ever e- even seen any Hitchcock other than Psycho at that point. But the book was so interesting that I went on a Hitchcock binge. You know, he actually started out, he had such a long career. It ended in, I think, 1978, maybe even, ni- I think he might have made it to 1980. But his first films were silent films in the 1920s. Um, and his first that he calls the real Hitchcock film is called The Lodger. And so it's an hour long silent film called The Lodger. It's very gothic, very campy, super fun to watch. Could not stop watching it, even though um, it was an old silent film. Uh, I'm in an MFA program for TV and screenwriting. And I have to write a term paper every semester on an Screenwriter, usually almost always a female screenwriter. It's for Stevens College, and the the focus is on uh, wim, getting women into Hollywood, into writing rooms, and the forgotten history of women in screenwriting. So, kind of Hitchcock's secret weapon was a woman named Joan Harrison, who he hired to be his secretary um, in the in I think nineteen thirty three, but very quickly realized she was not secretary material. She was a writer producer um, at heart. Uh, so, she's been my uh, term paper focus this semester. So, I've been watching a lot of Hitchcock. Hitchcock uh that she was involved with, uh really fascinating woman. So the woman, the phantom lady behind Hitchcock, Joan Harrison. Um, so anything she was involved with is also also really interesting. Um she ended up producing his Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV show. Uh so any of the really great episodes of that, you could you could thank her. She probably picked the material and and the cast.
1: I love it. You know, we're always learning about those
0: hidden figures, the women that are so many. like behind the scenes. There are there so many. hundreds. Early Hollywood was run by women. You know, the men were the studio heads, but they hired women left and right. In the 1920s, 50% of screenplays and scenarios were copy that were copyrighted were by women. So this idea, you know, I just heard actress say in an interview, she she had a character based on Anita Luce who wrote Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And she was like, oh, Anita Luce, she was one of the very few women who broke through in early Hollywood. And I was like, no, 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 no. She was one of hundreds. She was one of hundreds. <laughs> and I, I wanted to email her publicist with a list of names because what happens when this idea gets out, the women didn't exist in a certain industry then women don't feel like they belong in it when they belonged in it from the beginning. Yes, like uh, so many women were were so important in early Hollywood, just absolute, absolute hundreds of them. Um, and uh, that's the program I'm in is trying to, you know, raise awareness and 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 get us all radicalized for, for uh, speaking about the uh, the importance of women in Hollywood. Joan Harris, represent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that
1: uh, the only Hitchcock films that I'm familiar with are like The Birds, obviously, and Psycho. So I love hearing some other options that we should be checking out and also the history of silent film, which might be a lot of things that people don't know about.
0: Yeah, writers, okay. writers should writers should absolutely watch silent films to learn how to tell stories with visuals. Uh, we all benefit from from strong, stark images. But yeah, the, my favorite is North by Northwest. Any any writer out there can learn everything they need to know about character development by watching uh, the the arc that Cary Grant's character goes through in North by Northwest, from this kind of vapid, empty suit to a man willing to risk his life for love. Uh, great, great fun adventure film. So that's all I'll get off my Hitchcock Hitchcock soapbox.
1: I'm here for it and I'm also here for your adventure that you wrote. I am so excited that I get to talk to you. This is Meg's first interview about the wishing game. And when I got this book, I was transported for a good 24 hours. So it was really quick. Your publicist had reached out and I got the book and that day I started it and finished it. And the next day I was like, when can I get Meg on the show? So
0: this book oh, thank is you so
1: much. everything. It's thank you. So, thank you. So good.
0: Thank May, can you, you tell
1: us a little bit about The Wishing Game in your own words to someone who has not read it yet?
0: So The Wishing Game is for those of us who Even uh, when we are in our 40s and (laughs) 70s and 80s, you know, everyone, every adult who still rereads the books that they fell in love with as a child. Uh, For me, it's A Wrinkle in Time or The Chronicles of Narnia um, or Cricket in Times Square or another book that I'll talk about when we're going to talk about more island books. Uh, The books that we fell in love with as children that have stayed with us even into our adulthood the books that sort of changed our lives or turned us into readers, the ones we imprinted on. The Wishing Game is tribute to those books. The main character is a woman named Lucy Hart. She is a broke 26-year-old kindergarten teacher's age, making barely minimum wage, working barely full-time. Uh, and she really wants to adopt a boy who was in her kindergarten class who was orphaned. She's his reading tutor, and she wants to create a family with him. She doesn't have any relationship with her family. He has no family, but she lives with three roommates. And uh, the only sort of hope that she has uh, is that, you know, maybe she can get a second job or a third job or a fourth job. So she can get a car and and a place of her own, but it'll take years. uh, And she knows, and and the clock is ticking and and this little boy is getting older. So the magic happens when Lucy has shared her favorite book series with this boy, Christopher, and it's the Clock Island books by an author named Jack Masterson. Um, but for 10 years, there's been no new Clock Island book. And they they keep wishing. That's the wishing game. They play a wishing game uh, where they wish for new things like, you know, that Lucy could be able to adopt him and, and get a car and that sort of thing. So they wish for a new Clock Island book and... Then a contest is announced, a very Willy Wonka-style contest. Jack has written a new book. There's only one copy of it, and he's going to give it away. And the four contestants who get to come to his private island, the real clock island, not the fictional one, are the... Now, adults who, when they were kids, attempted to run away from home uh, to live with Jack on Clock Island, and Lucy was one of these. This is her her big, exciting secret that at age thirteen she tried to run away from home and showed up on Jack's doorstep on Clock Island. Uh, so he promised the kids, "When you're older, you can come back." And so now this is his chance to keep his promise and get a lot of excitement going for his new book. So if Lucy wins the book, she could sell it to a publisher and have the money to get her own place, a car, and adopt Christopher. So this is a, a life changing opportunity for her.
1: It is so magical. I absolutely loved it. I was transported, especially in the chapters where you intercepted with the Clock Island chapters that gave us those feelings where I had a flashlight and I was hiding yes. in my bed with a book. <laughs>
0: I went back and forth on on whether to do that or not, because I don't write middle grade, and middle grade is probably the hardest type of fiction to write. Anybody who thinks writing for kids is easy has never tried writing for kids. Uh, But I felt like just I had to. I I couldn't talk about Clock Island books without walking the walk. So I I had to I had to create at least excerpts from one of them. Uh, So, yeah, there's five excerpts in the book from from a Clock Island book. I'm putting it in in quotes um, from a real Clock Island book, which were a lot of fun to write I got to pretend to be a middle grade writer which was very freeing because you can do anything because kids love joy and whimsy and they're not sitting there going wait how can you talk to a person who doesn't actually like you never see them they just are in shadows all the time how does the shadow fall they're not analyzing they just go with it they have fun so it was a lot of fun to write that. I loved
1: too that Lucy and Christopher, when they are first trying to like crowdfund for this project <laughs> for her to be able to adopt him is that they are knitting scarves and they have a little Etsy shop going. And as someone who knitted and was at a snail pace on knitting, I could appreciate this <laughs> like labor of love and how they yes. were trying to make money this way first before yes, she had sad. this great adventure.
0: Yes, this sad little Etsy shop of hers, you know, buying yarn on sale, you know, for $5 and, and selling it, you know, for $30 on Etsy and making 25 you know, once or twice a week. Just the, the gig economy and, and the hustle that 20-somethings are really going through right now, the, the financial struggle, um, you know, ev- everybody's broke in their 20s. I, I certainly was. So, it, it took me back. Um, I don't I don't knit much. I do crochet quite a bit. Um, I, I usually don't sell, But I have always envied people who could do four-needle knitting of uh, really elaborate scarves, so I decided to let Lucy be able to do that, give her this this little skill.
1: Well, I love it. Well, as the debut novelist here, I would love to hear about how this book came to be and how long this process took for you.
0: You can say the book started when I was in the third grade. Two things happened in the third grade that created this book, uh, which is the first one was I saw... Uh, Willy Wonk and the Chocolate Factory, the film, uh, was shown to us in the third grade by our teacher who, Mrs. Glenn, who needed a break. <laughs> and I was mesmerized by it. I've never seen anything as weird or wild or strange or mesmerizing as, as, uh, Gene Wilder and Willy Wonk and the Chocolate Factory. But also that was the first year I, or the first time I ever wrote a story or tried to write a story. And we had watched, uh, and listened to in music class in the third grade, Peter and the Wolf. And I wanted to write a story about the animals the wolf ate um, and them getting their revenge, coming back to life and getting their revenge. <laughs> so it, that was a, the first time I was writing a story that was in response to another story, writing art, creating art about art. Kurt Vonnegut said there's two There's two types of writers, the people who write about life and the people who write about art. And I went, oh, that's me. I'm somebody who writes about art. So third grade, Peter and the Wolf, and now um, Willy Wonk and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> um, and, and a fictional book series and all the book series we loved when we were kids. But I've written my entire life. Uh, the Wishing Game is, is by no means the first thing I, I've ever written, but it's my first mainstream general fiction hardcover book. Um, just in the last year in my MFA program, I've written a Star Trek script uh so that's my star trek fan fiction i i got to write for for school that was homework Write star trek script it's like if this i would have been a valedictorian if in high school i got to write star trek fan f- fiction for school and uh wrote a pilot and a screenplay and and short fiction you know i've written everything but this was the first time that i i sat down and went i want to write a real family book the book that I've wanted to write for years. And of course it was during the pandemic when we were all thinking, we had so much downtime and we were all thinking, oh, life does not go on forever. Life is short. It's Mm -hmm. too short. And if there's something I I need to do or want to do, I better do it now because I am not guaranteed tomorrow. So I'd had this idea for the book for for years. I'd made the mistake of telling a few people the idea and, and they sort of said, I don't get it. I don't really understand. It doesn't. Sound, is it a kids' book? Is it a grown-up book? Hemingway always said, "If you if you talk about it, you lose it." And I think that's mm. what happened. I talked about it, and and I let people talk me out of it, including an editor I spoke to about it. But it ended up being a good thing. The idea never went away. It always stayed in the back of my head. So I got to figure out plot problems over the past few years. Um, and then when I sat down to finally write it during the pandemic, I think it would have been the fall of 2020 when I started writing it finally, it was actually an easy process to write it because I had spent four years with it sort of percolating in the back of my mind. Um, and I'd figured out all the plot issues. And I had an agent by then who who was really invested in the book and worked with me on it. And so it just kind of the rough draft came out in three months. Wow,
1: that's amazing. So
0: four years plus three months, <laughs> four years <laughs> of thinking and three months of writing.
1: <laughs> that That's really encouraging, though, to hear, because I know probably some listeners and myself, I've been sitting on a book idea and I have been talking about it with friends and their reaction either, you know, gives me a little bit of momentum and I started and then I start questioning myself about whether this is a viable thing. I can certainly say that if I would have heard this book idea, I would have been completely on board. Was there any time, though, that you thought maybe I should market this as a young adult or go middle grade route because of the context of what you were doing, or you always wanted this to be a book for adults.
0: I always wanted it to be for people like us, you know, for, for Mm -hmm. grownups who still love books that they read as a kid. Um, but I also wanted it to be a book that middle grade readers could read. You know, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty family friendly book. Now there's a lot of adult content in it, but, but it's still pretty PG. Um, my 13 year old niece is reading it right now. Um, and my sister said she, she loves it. She can't put it down. Uh, but she has to tell my sister every time she sees a dirty word in it, which is like, I think three of them. <laughs> Three or four of them. So it's pretty tame. Uh, But yeah, so my niece is being a narc, (laughs) which I love. But yes, you can, you can, uh, it's for adults, but you can let a 13 year old who loves to read, read it. So yeah, I want it to be, I want it to be a a parent and, and kid book or, you know, listen to it in audio in the car with your whole family. But yeah, I did. After it was done, I thought, man, I kind of do want to write a Clock Island book for middle graders, but it's just too hard. Middle grade is just I have nothing but respect for middle grade writers because it is hard to do. Well, I do want to talk to you about the podcast episode that inspired this.
1: In your author's note, you stumbled upon a podcast from This American Life called Just South of the Unicorns. Why did you decide that that was something that you wanted to hook into? And did you learn any more about that story after the podcast had aired?
0: It's a really great episode of This American Life. I highly recommend anyone who's a book lover listen to it. You'll you'll just have so much respect for this guy. <laughs> the story is true story that um, I believe in the in the nineteen eighties, a teenage boy who had no friends. I think he was living in either New York or Maine. Um, no friends and had a terrible relationship with his stepfather, he only found comfort in Piers Anthony's Xanth fantasy novels. And at the end of all of the books, there was an author long author's note that was sort of a precursor to an author blog. So Piers Anthony would write a little essay about what was going on in his life. And this kid who got apparently got terrible grades, must have been a genius. One of those smart kids who doesn't do his homework because he managed to piece together where Piers Anthony lives or lived at the time based on these little clues in the author's note. So he took the little bit of his college fund that his grandmother had saved for him, bought a plane ticket, and flew down to Florida and hunted down Piers Anthony. Showed up on his doorstep, Piers Anthony answers, The poor kid bursts into tears immediately (laughs) and starts, you know, just uh, sort of sobbing, talking. I want to live with you. I'm sorry. Can I just like do your dishes? Can I garden? You know, this this heartbreaking story of this lonely, lonely teenager reaching out to his favorite author uh, as as a cry for help. Uh, and it's, it's a really lovely story because Piers Anthony took good care of him. He brought him in, calmed him down. They gave him dinner. They, they immediately called his mother. He's home, He's safe. We know where he is. He's fine. <laughs> and uh, gave him dinner, let him spend the night in, in the daughter's room. I think the daughter was off at college. So he did get to spend the night at his favorite author's house. Uh, and, and Mr. Anthony said, well, we've got two options here. If things are so bad at home, if you are in danger, if you are in real trouble, we will call child services. But if it's just that you hate your stepdad, if he just sucks, then just put up with it. You're almost out of high school. Just put up with it. It'll be over in a couple years and, and just just power through and you'll be on your own and this will all be behind you. And he had to admit it was like, yeah, it's it's not that bad. Uh, I, I don't like this guy. I don't like being at home, but I'm not being abused. I'll go home. I I miss my mom already. And and he said that adventure and that conversation with Pierce Anthony actually gave him the courage and the strength to keep going. You know, he, he he. It sounds like a kid these days probably could have ended up as a very sad statistic. That sort of bullied loner. Uh, no friends, uh, bad relationship with parents. Things could have gone very bad for him, but, but having that conversation with his favorite author, being encouraged, he kept going. And years later, he was on This American Life. <laughs> Um, and and I won't give away anymore because the the way they found out about the story is uh, and ended up it being this American Life episode is really interesting and and worth listening to but I forget who told me about it somebody said I had to listen to it and I did and I just could not get it out of my head just the courage of this kid just the cojones (laughs) to do that (laughs) now when an adult fan shows up on your doorstep then they're a stalker and it's terrifying but when it's when it's a troubled kid there's something very sweet and brave about it um and so this was my proof this really happens kids do fall in love with an author so much and they want to live with them and and you have this fantasy of you know i'm a huge madeline lingle fan and i knew that she lived in this gorgeous you know 300 year old farmhouse on in connecticut and i i would have loved to have lived there um that was the fantasy as a kid i i never would have run away from home and showed up on her doorstep step but uh, somebody did do that so you know God bless him <laughs> but yeah so that that was one of the the inspirations a true inspiration for the wishing game this does happen this has happened. <laughs>
1: I love it. For a book club, this is a great question. What doorstep would you show up on as if you could like meet your favorite childhood author? I think I would probably be on Judy Bloom's step. So I'm really looking forward to the documentary about her because her books were like my perfect books when I was growing up. And I know that she had a lot of connections, probably similarly (laughs) to some (laughs) of these incidences that are happening in this particular episode. And I, I can't wait to hear how she connects with her
0: Fans, so that's a really fun. Oh, she's lovely. I uh, I met her. Um, we were in Key West and we went to her bookstore, and she was there. My husband went, Judy Bloom's over there, and I said, Okay, um, let's go talk to Judy <laughs> <laughs> And And she's lovely. She signed a book to Meg Schaefer, her newest book, and um, I have it on my shelf right now. And she's just, she's just, she wanted to hear about my book, she wanted to hear about us. She, you know, she's happy to answer questions, but now she just She's a bookseller and I've worked at bookstores. So we talked about working at bookstores and the love of of uh, the book life. And yeah, just go to Books and Books in Key West uh, and you'll probably get to meet her. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Pocket list. Yes. Well, this book has a very unique contest with like riddles and there's competitions in it. How did you develop those? Obviously you have like a really fun brain. I'm like, I'm enjoying all of your hyperfixations. I'm wondering how you developed these games and riddles for this plot.
0: Hyperfixation is a good term for it. Uh, <laughs> my poor husband, he knows more. He has watched probably two Hitchcock films, but he knows about all of them at this point. Uh, <laughs> no. So the, uh, the first game, the room on the moon or, uh, yeah, The Green Glass Door, um, also known as um, A Room on the Moon, is the word game that they play. I learned about that from reading an essay by Ann Patchett. She talks about it. And oh. I looked it up. I was like, oh, this is a fun game to torture people. And it turns out it's this old <laughs> game that people have been playing in summer camp for years. Or, or Kids played it in school. I won't give away the the what the riddle means, but you'll find out. I, I wrote it as a way that readers could play along. So I don't want to give away the... The trick to them. Um, the scavenger hunt was fun. I was like, well, we need to do a scavenger hunt that takes them all over the island. And so I had to figure out a way to make that sort of whimsical. Uh, so I created the impossible scavenger hunt that they're looking for things that don't exist and and how I could turn that into another word game that readers could figure out. This is going to be a nightmare to translate. I have no idea. The book is <laughs> sold in multiple territories and languages. I think we're up to 10 at this point, um, you know, including... Uh, Italian, Japanese, Spanish. And there's, there's so many English specific word games that these poor translators, bless them, are going to have a lot of fun. I hope, I hope they don't kill me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's just, I've always loved words. I love words. I love words and sentences, which is, you know, I think, I think writers, I think writers do the way you know, carpenters love their hammers and their nails, you know, that's their, their tools. And you become kind of a gearhead about them. Um, so it was, it was actually a lot of fun to try to figure out, uh, you know, child-friendly solvable riddles that I could put in the book that weren't too easy, but weren't too hard. Um, You know, because because they are kids books, I wanted kids to the Clock Island books are kids books. I wanted uh, these to be the kind of things that Jack would have put in his Clock Island books. But yeah, it was it was hard, but it was a lot of fun.
1: Well, my husband used to do the Mensa games every morning at work. Like he would, they would have a Mensa question, and he would like solve it and everything. So I was reading the riddles from your book out loud, and he would solve it like in a snap. And I Good would be sitting him. there being like,
0: um, "So <laughs> it's <laughs> kind of like doing crossword puzzles. Riddles have a their own language, and once you you or their own dialect." So once you do the New York Times crossword puzzle, you start to understand that the, what the clues are pointing to. Whereas if you come in brand new, they're, they're written in such a way to be confusing. But once, once you get the trick, then you know them. Um, so people, people who do riddles a lot, they know immediately, you know, how to look, you know, it's, you know, I'm a writer. So I know when I'm reading a book that's a mystery novel, if the mystery novel is in third person, multiple point of views, the killer is the person who doesn't get a point of view every time Ooh. because you can't write in the point of view third person of the murderer. We would know they were the murderer. They w- we would know they were the guilty party. So it's <laughs> this has worked multiple times. And also like watching Law and Order, the most famous guest star. If Philip Seymour Hoffman is the guest star uh on an old episode of Law and Order, you know he's the one who did it. Or or um, you know, it, it, name another it there's so many people who guest star. Literally everyone guest starred at some point on Law and Order. But if you recognize one of the extras or one of the guest stars, they're the killer. Uh, every time. <laughs> that's that's my trick. Um so yeah, riddles, riddles and crossword puzzles are kind of like that. They have their own little tricks to them. And once you figure them out, you get really good at it. you, you get to impress other people who don't know the trick.
1: I'm the one that does the spelling bee. So I stick in my lane. I know where I'm good. I, I can come up with a million words, but when it comes to crosswords, riddles, not my thing. But my husband was totally cued in to every single thing that I had said. I was like, what do you think about this? He's like, Oh, it's this. And I'm like, Oh, dang it. How do you get everything?
0: <laughs> good job. He'd be, he'd be do very well on Clock Island. He'd get his wish.
1: Well, speaking of Clock Island. One of the most inventive aspects of your story is that you actually crafted a book title for like over 60 some books at the end of the book, as well as other nonfiction work, which I think was like a really interesting aspect of jack masterson that he had like non-fiction and poetry work that was also added on um how did you end up crafting the titles for clock island was this like a thing that you did in the evenings i'm just curious because you had such great titles for the whole series Oh, thank you that was that was fun
0: books. fun and frustrating i can't remember who suggested it initially it might have been uh my editor shauna it might have been my agent it might have been my husband but somebody said wouldn't it be fun if they're was a book list for all of the Clock Island books in the back. And um, I knew there needed to be a lot of them. The the sort of loose inspiration for the Clock Island books are the Goosebumps series by R.L. Stein, which you know are, you know, they're very slim and they were released four or six a year. They came out really fast and kids were addicted to them. So I I wanted to do, you know, something like that. And and there's always that reading, that fun reading list in the books that you loved as a kid, the Nancy Drew books, Hardy... Boys' books, and you're like, oh, there's a hundred of them out there. I'm, you know, it's like finding buried treasure. So I'm a huge Ray Bradbury fan, and he wrote Published six hundred short stories, so I got his book of short stories and looked at. He, he was so good at short story titles, like the October Game and A Sound of Thunder. You know, All Summer in a Day. Wonder, wonderful, evocative titles. So I just picked words from his short story titles, and then I would Google. You know, list of Halloween words, list of magic words. You know, and then then just combine them. Uh, the Halloween unicorn. You know, that's not one of them, but you know, you fun stuff like that. Um, uh, so yeah, it was, it was just a process of, of a couple hours on two or three different days and sending the list to friends and saying, okay, look at this. Got any suggestions? Um, so mm-hmm. my husband threw in some, some friends threw in some. Uh, but yeah, to create, to create this whole sort of fake book world that jack has created plus uh like i said i'm a big ray bradbury fan and ray bradbury wrote poetry and he wrote nonfiction. so i was like jack would too he would write his writing memoir he would he so whimsical he would write poetry so i gave him a couple poetry collections and they're all a lot of them were jokes that i made wouldn't it be funny to you know there's i robot um, and i claudius wouldn't it be funny if there was i cyclops uh, so that was my my poetry book that, that I gave to Jack, you know, I never get I will never write a poetry book uh, and name it I Cyclops, uh, but I can I can give it to Jack and that can be his so it can it can get out there in the world.
1: Oh, I love it. Well, that was actually a really creative element. I felt like Jack Masterson was like a real person. I think you did such a great job. Uh, creating all the different sides of him. Also just that he has a great backstory too, and that he's, you know, not feeling the magic in his own writing, which I think we all have those seasons in our creative processes where we don't have that light or that fire for it. And I know. For me, knowing that other people connect with my work is what really gives me joy and helps me reconnect with my writing. And that's how I feel like Jack, too, having all of these people that are such big fans of him get to come and play in this contest was such a way to reignite his own passion for his work, even though he had the secret book that he had been working on.
0: Yeah. And I and I think it was um it was during the pandemic, I was writing it and so many writers were struggling that it really brought home to me how hard it was for a lot of people to get through it and to be creative. Creativity, I'm not a big believer that creativity comes out of depression and tragedy. Mm -hmm. Um, The act of creation, it's like the act of planting a garden. It's you believe in the future. You believe in hope. You believe something will come of it. You're planting a seed because you think something will come of it. So... Artists are by nature optimists um, and, and the pan- pandemic really wore a lot of our optimism down, uh, which is part of the reason why I decided whether whether I can do it or not, I'm going to try to write this book during the pandemic. But yeah, I've, I heard a lot of stories from authors. I, I have a writer friend. She turned in her book to her editor during the pandemic and the editor said, well, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is this won't work. You need to rewrite the whole thing. But the good news is you're literally my only writer who managed to finish anything this year. So (laughs) that's what it was like if you were writing, maybe you could write, but you were writing badly because you were so distracted and depressed um, or you were too busy taking care of your kids um, suddenly homeschooling and and didn't get to write. So it was it was a tough time to be a writer. And I I, uh, was thinking of put a lot of that into Jack's struggle to find his joy again as a writer.
1: That's really interesting. You know, one thing that I think as readers, a lot of criticism has come out about some of the books that have been coming out lately because they are not the sparkle or the the joyful experience that we may have become accustomed to with the writers that we read. But that season was hard for them, just as hard as it was for us. And to try to be creative and joyful and have the spark during that season would be really challenging. And although we've been able to see a lot of writers that benefited from like the extra time, like the forced time at home, that was part of their process is that maybe they came out with their very first book. There were also people that did not feel that passion or could not tap into that during that season. And so some of these books that have been coming out haven't been what we might have come to expect, but I'm really excited to see what happens in the upcoming year and in the years ahead as we're pulling hopefully out of the season and into some more joyful times for our writers.
0: Yeah, I I chose on purpose to write the happiest book I could think of, to give the happiest ending to the most deserving people. And it was really, for me, First of all, mm-hmm. um, you know we we lost two pets in one year, and my grandmother, and so it was a rough year. And so it was just a choice. I am going to write something that makes me happy, <laughs> and hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully, if and when it gets published, it will it will give happiness and joy to other people uh, because it has been a hard few years, and we need it. We need we need a little. You know, there's a reason Shirley Temple uh, peaked during the Great Depression. Why she was she was America's <laughs> sweetheart. during the Great Depression. We need we need a song and dance sometimes.
1: Well, that is the most joyful kind of book that you could give anyone. I truly loved it. It is my favorite book so far this year. I'm just oh, thank saying. you so much. It a, a lot to me. <laughs> it, it is so genuine. It's not because you're here. It really was um, tapping into a part of myself that I've lost, definitely during the pandemic. And um, gosh, I feel like I'm going to cry, but that that was a hard <laughs> season. And I'm so grateful To have books like these that bring that joy back and that remind us that those parts of ourselves, our children, you know, selves are still there and that those need those kind of reigniting and actually made me want to go back and read some of my childhood books or books that I missed uh, that I had not picked up because it tapped into a part of myself that I feel like has been dormant. You know, in my 40s, I'm not tapping into that as much as I should. And I craved that. And it was exactly what I needed when I needed it. And I know it's going to be that way for so many people listening. Um, I really can't say enough good things. Oh, thank you so much.
0: You know, Ursula K. Le Guin said, the creative adult is the child who survived. So mm-hmm. when you are creative, that's your kid coming out. So embrace that uh, is all I would say, uh, and know that know that when you are creating and writing, um, that is that is your childhood joy that that survived all these years.
1: Mm, that's a great reminder. Well, readers, we are heading out to the islands now with the second part of our discussion. I want to remind you that there is an accompanying bonus book list with Meg's recommendations from today and mine. And Meg, since you have been talking so much, I'm going to give you a beat because I've actually been reading an island adventure that I want to talk about. It's also from another debut novelist. It's called Revel by Lissa Mia Smith. This is a debut fantasy audiobook escape that I've been doing. It's part of the Scribd catalog, so if you are in Scribd, you can access it there. If you're not, I highly recommend it. I'll put a link. It's basically an unlimited audiobook and book platform, and I have a tutorial that you can access in today's show notes. So this is a young adult novel. It came out in February, and it just happened to get on my radar because we were talking about island adventures. This is actually inspired by Moulin Rouge, and it's set on an island in a magical version of Prohibition-era New York. So basically, the Prohibition is posing a threat to their livelihood, and there is a family that is struggling to make ends meet. And they have a bar that they're running, and they are diluting their champagne and mending sequined costumes. And in the midst of this struggle, Lux, our main character, is presented with an offer by the son of Shermont's wealthiest family. It's basically a fake dating trope, so for those of you that appreciate that, he needs a fake girlfriend to help him become mayor, and he will provide everything that the Revels need to stay in business. Now, our other main character is Jameson Port, and he arrives in Charmant with a nagging sense of deja vu. He's an orphan with memories of his past, and he's desperate to uncover the truth about his parents. However, as he starts to delve deeper into the island's mysteries, he risks angering powerful individuals and unraveling a truth that could shatter his heart. When Lux and Jameson cross paths by chance, the sparks that fly between them are not just a result of her magical enchantments, but concealing secrets from influential figures is a perilous game, one that could ultimately destroy them both. So we have been exploring time travel on our website and we did, um, a really great book called Maybe Next Time. And if people haven't picked it up, I definitely recommend it. And this has some time travel elements in it. And what I loved the most about it is that the time travel actually helps people when they can't get access to booze during the prohibition. (laughs) They can go into other times where booze is available and use it as basically a system of, you know, kind of getting enough money to survive difficult times. Um, I really, really liked it. It has a very fantastical romance. It does follow some familiar tropes, and it did evolve, though, into more world-building and some richly drawn characters. It seems to be really satisfying with people who do like fantasy, and the audiobook did offer two narrators with two different viewpoints. So it's a fun standalone if you're just looking for a fantasy that you don't want to commit to a series. There's no loose ends on this. I really enjoyed the romance, the dual points of view, and again, the name of that novel is Revel by Alyssa Mia Smith. Sounds amazing. What do you have for us to go to the islands, Meg?
0: I have kind of a weird list. I hope you all Good. like it. Uh, one I think <laughs> is pretty obvious, but I, I'm embarrassingly, I only just read this book over the past two days. And it's We Were Liars by E. Lockhart, which was a massive hit in 2014, 2015. Everybody was reading it back then. I don't know what I was doing, but I missed it somehow. But I picked it up a few days ago, started reading it, not thinking I would love it, and then couldn't put it down. Absolutely. It was stuck to my hand uh, for a day uh, until I finished it. So it's the story of Caddy. She's a teenage girl, a member of a very privileged East Coast old money family. They spend their summers on their own private island. And it's Caddy and her favorite cousins and Gat, who's sort of a kind of pseudo step cousin. Um, and then we learn that Caddy has a mysterious head injury that she got two summers earlier when she was 15. Um, now she's 17 and she returns to the island to slowly piece together what happened. Uh, and it's one of the best twists I've ever read in a book. And I won't say any more about it, but it blew my mind and I was so impressed by it. Just the guts to pull that off. Amazing. And so well-written. You know, there's, there's a sort of um, weird disjointed aspect to the prose, which you would expect from somebody who um, is, is seemingly suffering from a head injury and, and migraines. And it just worked really, really well. Um, absolutely loved it. Uh, my next island book, i um, going to get a little nerdy here, but I genuinely love this book. I would not recommend any book that I didn't genuinely love, but it's To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf from 1927. Uh, it's probably my favorite Virginia Woolf novel. Uh, it's about a family who spends their summer on the Isle of Skye off the coast of Scotland. This is a modernist classic. It's written in what uh, is known as a stream of consciousness style. Uh, this was something writers started trying in the early 20th century. It was a way of recreating our thought processes um, in fiction. Uh, so it's not a plot-driven book. It's not even a character-driven book. It's a thought-driven book, um, this, this really interesting modernist classic. Uh, it, it really blew people's minds back then. We're kind of used to stream of consciousness now. So many writers uh, use it. But back then, it was brand new. Nobody had seen books written like this before. Uh, and it's a very lovely, peaceful book and while you're reading it you will truly feel like you're cut off from the rest of the world you really will feel mm. like you're on an island uh so that's my second recommendation and my third one uh is is a book that i have i have loved all my life and it is called jacob have i loved by katherine patterson uh from 1980 uh since you know, the Clock Island books are middle grade. I thought I would suggest a middle grade island book mm-hmm. that, that, uh, I've, I've read it as an adult too, and it's just a dazzlingly beautiful book for, for kids and adults. So it's set in World War Two on an isolated fishing island. Uh, Sarah Louise is a very poor girl. She's from an impoverished family. Uh, she, has a sister, Caroline, who's incredibly beautiful and talented, whereas Sarah Louise is more drab, uh, probably what we would have called back then a tomboy. Um, she envies her sister's beauty and her talents and feels really unloved compared to her much more glamorous sister. But she does love her sister, and so she ends up working as a crab fisher to try to raise money so her sister can get singing lessons. And so it's about this sort of uh, growing up, You know, finding out who she is, separating from her sister, finding her place in the world. And it's a really interesting middle grade book. I don't know if any middle grade books would do it today, but it actually follows our character into adulthood. So we get to see in the last couple of chapters who she becomes as an adult. Um, And it's this really beautiful arc uh, from this, you know, troubled Sort of put upon, forgotten girl to finding herself uh, as an adult, um, and I just absolutely love it. Uh, but yeah, it's it's mostly set on a, a fictional fishing island. I love that. You know, uh, the category of
1: genre as I've been doing more podcasts and and putting together these book lists is that they now have new adult. So it's like young adult, and then there's like new adult, which it sounds like it might be sitting in that sweet spot where you are just. Becoming an adult or like learning about someone as they are coming of age and that, that aspect. And yeah, I, I think love she goes from about list.
0: maybe about 12 to, to 25 or something like that. So you really, it's, it's, you only see her as an adult in the last chapter, the last couple of chapters. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's uh, a few years of her on this island as she figures out who she is and who she wants to be. Um, and that she's much more loved and appreciated by her family than she realizes. Um, and, you know, it's anybody who has ever felt a rivalry with their sister, which I did as a kid, but certainly not as an adult. Um, we'll find a lot to, that speaks to them. And Katherine Patterson, she wrote uh, A Bridge to Terabithia um, and, and other famous books. So, you know, she you know, you're getting a good book with her.
1: I love that. Well, my last one is taking a kind of an adult turn I guess um, we have Wendy Hurd who is going to be a guest on our summer author series as well she actually has two books coming out a month apart so she's got Will Never Tell which is her YA release that's hitting store shelves on May 16th but the island book that we are going to be talking about on the show is called You Can Trust Me and this is for my friends that are enjoying the current moment with Lady Khan artists so we are Ooh. stepping into a thrilling world of great. Griff- and deception with this latest novel. It's perfect for fans who really appreciated White Lotus season two, Lucia and Mia's perspective. So they kind of are in the hotel for those that maybe haven't watched, but they basically are grifting throughout that beautiful opulent land. And that is what is happening in this story. It's a popcorn thriller. We have best friends, Summer and Leo. They have had each other's back through thick and thin, but face one of their greatest challenges together. So Summer is basically, she's an expert pickpocketer, and she takes Leo, a young woman living on the streets under her wing, and together they decide to plan a con that spirals out of control. Now, they are two skilled grifters, and they set their sights on a billionaire named Michael, but they start to find themselves in danger when they discover that their mark isn't who he seems to be. Now, Leo ends up disappearing, and Summer is really worried because she has taken this woman under her wing, and for her to not, you know, return her texts or calls or anything, she starts to get really concerned. And so she basically... Finds out that she thinks that Leo might be on an island and she meets one of Michael's employees and says, I need to get to this island, too. And he's like, oh, there happens to be this event happening on the island for the employees and I can take you there. So the story is told from alternating perspectives. It's got really smart backstories and motives for both Summer and Leo as the two try to find one another again. Herd weaves in flashback sequences seamlessly, and she builds some really good tension, suspense, and connection through their timelines. I think the best thing about this book is her writing of grifting. Uh, There are so many passages, uh, though, that do seem a little ripped from Epstein's Island. So if you are familiar with the documentary or the story about Epstein, you know that that's going to go into some dark places about these women that Get lured on this island. But I will say that this has a very feminist slant to it, and they may have invited the wrong ladies. Okay, so just so you know, this will take a different kind of turn. I got this as an advanced copy from Bantam. So this novel will publish on June 13th, and Wendy will be featured on our Summer Author Series. So be sure to check out her novel. You can trust me, it is so, so good. Well, as we close out the show, Meg, I always end with telling my authors what I'm proud of them for. And I also like to hear what you are proud of with your project. I just want to say again that this book did something to my cold, dead Grinch heart. I <laughs> loved it. I am not normally much of a fantasy reader. I don't really feel the magic anymore in my life. And there was something about this book that made me cry, that made me so happy, that reminded me of being a child again. And I know that this book is going to impact so many readers who are craving that. I always try to pick one kind of magical book for our book club every year. And this is probably our book club magic book for next year. So I'm just queuing you in if you are not knowing if you're going to be clued into this. Yes, this is true. So oh, Meg, thank you. I want to hear a little bit about what you are particularly proud of with this project.
0: I think what I'm most proud of, and thank you so much, that is really kind, very kind of you, uh, is that I did not listen to the people who said, oh, I don't get it. (laughs) I got it. I believed in myself. I believed in the story and I believed in Lucy and Christopher and I wanted to give them a happy ending. And I did, Um, which ended up giving me a happy ending because I'm getting my first, you know, hardcover fiction book release, which has been a dream come true my whole life. Um, So yes, uh, believe in the beauty of your dreams, said someone. I don't know who, but they were right. <laughs> so I knew, I knew this was a good idea and and I didn't let anybody talk me out of it. Uh, and when the time came to write it, I wrote it. Uh, so that's, that's also advice for all you writers out there. If there's a, a story that has been sort of poking you in the back, uh, maybe listen to that hint. If it, if it won't leave you alone, maybe it is the book that you should write.
1: You heard it here. Be sure to purchase a copy of The Wishing Game, which will be available on store shelves on May 30th.